Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour today is journalist, author, public radio broadcaster David Barron. Barron is an avid umbrophile who's witnessed five total solar eclipses. He's crossed the Americas, Europe, Asia, and Australia to catch the shadow of the moon. And on August 21st, he'll be in Jackson Hole, Wyoming to witness the first total solar eclipse to cross the country from coast to coast in 99 years. On the program today, we're going to talk about the history and science of eclipses, share some tips for the best way to experience the upcoming eclipse, and uh, we'll talk about uh, David Barron's new book as well. Previous book was The Beast in the Garden. The new book is American Eclipse, a nation's epic race to catch the shadow of the moon and win the glory of the world. David Barron is an award-winning journalist, former science correspondent for NPR, former science editor for public radio program The World, and as we mentioned, he is an incurable umbrophile. His passion for chasing eclipses began in 1998. He lives in Boulder, uh, Colorado. By the way, uh, the website to go to is American-Eclipse.com. David Barron, welcome to the program. Thank you, Tom. I'm thrilled to be here. So um, I want to talk a little bit about the upcoming eclipse first and then uh, get some of your personal experiences and then jump into this fascinating history. You go back to the uh, uh, an eclipse in 1878 involving uh, such people as Thomas Edison. Um, but uh, first of all, you're going to be in Jackson Hole. That's in the path of totality. Um, this is a great interest to people in Utah because not too long a trip and people can be in the path of totality. Exactly. Actually, from Utah, it would be easy to go up to uh, Idaho on Eclipse Day. And uh, I live, as you said, in Colorado, so I'm heading up to Wyoming. But it's important to remember that on August 21st, all of North America will see a partial solar eclipse, but the total eclipse will only be visible in a 70-mile-wide path that goes from Oregon to South Carolina. So Salt Lake City, for instance, will see a deep partial eclipse, but if you want to see totality, and I would encourage everyone to make it a priority, you have to go up to Idaho or uh, Wyoming from where you are. So uh, some of the places in uh, Idaho would be uh, Rexburg, St. Anthony, um Idaho Falls would be some of the some of the places, Driggs and uh, some other places you can you can find the the towns in the path of totality. What's so? What's the big deal then? Uh, partial eclipse versus total eclipse. So you're saying this is you, you need to be in the path of totality is what you're saying. Absolutely, it is a fundamentally different experience. And I know a lot of folks will say, "Oh, it's going to be a ninety percent partial eclipse where I am. Isn't that good enough? Why should I battle?" The epic traffic, and I assure you there will be epic traffic for the millions of people going to see the total eclipse. But uh, bear with me for a minute. A 90% partial eclipse is nothing. It is not 1% as good. It's not one-tenth percent as good as a total eclipse. And that's because it is only in the path of the total eclipse where it actually will go dark in the middle of the day. In fact, daylight will drop by a factor of a million now, if you have a 90% partial eclipse, that means 10% of the sun is still visible. You've dropped daylight by a factor of 10. That's like a, that's like a cloudy day. And it's going to happen so gradually, you won't even notice the diminution in daylight. If you're in the path of totality, it will very dramatically go dark. St- bright stars and planets will come out, and it's only in the path of totality that you can actually look at the sun with the naked eye. And I want to be clear about this. If you during the partial eclipse, it is never safe to look at the sun with the naked eye. You have to protect your eyes with eclipse glasses. But in the path of totality, for a little over two minutes, depending on where you are, 
during the total eclipse, you actually can take off the glasses, look at the sky with the naked eye, and you will see a sun that you have never seen before. It is absolutely spectacular. Tell me a little bit more about uh, what what happens. I, I imagine temperature would drop. The temperature will drop a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, you may notice a change in uh, the weather a little bit. Sometimes if it's a windy day, it'll suddenly get calm, or if it's a calm day, it'll suddenly get windy because the change in solar radiation will affect uh, the weather. Um, birds will definitely be reacting uh, to the dropping of the light as if suddenly dusk were coming on. Um, you may see fireflies and bats come out in the middle of the day, but the most dramatic thing is what you see overhead. Because, I mean, before I saw my first total eclipse, I frankly thought, well, what's the big deal? <laughs> it's going to go dark, right? It goes dark at night. I know what it's like when it goes dark. But the thing about a total eclipse is not what's hidden. It's actually what's revealed. Because on any given day, uh, the stars and the planets are up there in the middle of the day. You just can't see them because the blue sky acts as a screen, a curtain. During a total eclipse, the blue sky gets stripped away, and you actually can see what's overhead. And you can look toward the center of the solar system and see the sun and the planets together. It's a, it's a, it is a sky you have never seen before, if you haven't been in the path of a total eclipse. Um, and it's almost like you've been transported to another planet. It's that dramatic. Tell me a bit about your first uh, total solar eclipse. You you were in Aruba, nineteen ninety eight. I you you gone there to to see the the eclipse. Exactly. So actually, so it all the story begins a few years before that. In nineteen ninety four, um, there was a partial solar eclipse that crossed the United States, and I was working for NPR at the time, and I did a story for Morning Edition about this, and I interviewed an ast- an astronomer, and he explained what was going to happen and how to observe this partial eclipse. But he's the one who explained to me what I've just explained to you, that a total eclipse is fundamentally different. And he he basically described a total eclipse as the most awe-inspiring sight in all of nature and encouraged me um, at some point in my life to see a total eclipse. So I discovered that a few years later, in February of 1998, a total eclipse was going to cross Aruba, and I figured, well, going to Aruba in February sounded like a good idea anyway. So I went down there, not really sure what to expect, but with my science journalist hat on, as, well, this will be an interesting thing to see. And it, it, for me, what was struck me so hard was it was not some interesting intellectual experience. It was a deeply emotional and, I dare say, spiritual experience to find myself feeling just connected to the universe in a really visceral way, something I had never experienced before. And it really changed my life. I mean, of course, it has turned me into an eclipse chaser. So now every couple of years I head off to experience this again in some part of the world. But, um, I mean, I am not a traditionally religious person, but I have to say it taps into that part of the brain. You feel yourself in the presence of something much, much larger than yourself. And it both... It both is kind of, it diminishes you, it makes you feel very humbled, but it's also very empowering because you feel connected to, to something much greater than yourself. So after that initial experience, then you became an eclipse chaser. I imagine there, there, there are a number of eclipse chasers around that probably have similar experiences to what you had. Absolutely. It's sort of a, it's a tight-knit community. Uh, but yeah, there are folks just like me. I mean, I've seen five total solar eclipses 
that uh, that makes me a bit of a novice. I mean, I know folks who've seen 10, 15, 20, but it takes a long time and, frankly, a lot of money to accumulate that many because a total eclipse occurs about once every 18 months somewhere on the planet, but it's often someplace very hard to get to, Antarctica or the middle of the ocean or equatorial Africa. And so uh, to get yourself into the path of a total eclipse is often quite difficult, and that is why I am encouraging, frankly, everyone I know and everyone I don't know to try to get to see the eclipse this year. It's been 38 years since a total eclipse visited any part of the continental United States. And as you said in your introduction, it's been 99 years since one crossed the country from coast to coast. This is a really rare event. And to have a total eclipse anywhere within a few hundred miles of you, I say take the day off, take your kids out of school, and go see it. Mm. What would be your your advice? Um, uh, maybe get there early. There, they, the estimates are, you know, half a million people, maybe more, are going to be migrating uh, around the time of the eclipse um, to, to 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 get into that uh, path of totality. Um, what uh, what advice would you give people? Uh, yes, it is going to be crazy, and uh, transportation officials are panicked. Uh, because they just don't know if the roads are going to be able to handle it. But the the Oregon Department of Transportation has given what I think is wise advice, which is uh, to arrive early, stay put, and leave late. Uh, so, you know, figure out where you're going to go. And again, you want to be somewhere in that 70-mile-wide path. Um, you want to ideally be someplace with a good view of the horizon and where the odds of clear skies are good. But you know, ideally get there the day before. And if you just can't, because frankly, there's, there are no hotel rooms left in most of the path of totality, but you still may be able to go camping or sleep on the floor at a, a friend's house. Uh, but if you can get there the day before, that's ideal. If you can't, I mean, I would suggest getting up really early to drive to Idaho or Wyoming, uh, because it could just be a parking lot. Mm. Uh, approximately what time of day is this going to be happening in Idaho and Wyoming? Yeah, so uh, it, so it, uh, where I will be in Jackson, uh, the total eclipse begins at about 11.35 in the morning, mountain time. And so in Idaho, it will be a few minutes before that because the shadow will be racing eastward at about 2,000 miles an hour. Um, but uh, so you had mentioned it. Uh, I have a website for my book. It's American-Eclipse.com. And on the website, I have a page of resources about the August 21st eclipse, including links to uh, things like NASA, which has an interactive eclipse map. And if you go to NASA's eclipse map, it's a, basically a Google map, you can zoom in and, and just and click on the precise place where you will be, and the map will tell you to the second, in fact, to a tenth of a second, precisely when the partial eclipse will begin and when the total eclipse will begin at that spot. So you'd want to, you know, get that worked out in advance so that you, you have your timing worked out. And it's, it's fairly brief. What, a couple of minutes? It is very brief. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the ma- for this total eclipse, the, uh, the, the longest duration will be 2 minutes and 41 seconds, and that will be in southern Illinois. Uh, in this part of the country, it'll be a little over 2 minutes. So where I am in Jackson, it'll be at most 2 minutes 20 seconds. Um, and again, I know it sounds a little crazy. Why, why go to all this trouble for something that lasts no more than two minutes twenty seconds? But it's a truly, truly remarkable two minutes twenty seconds. Mm-hmm. And you, which you can certify, you've you've experienced five of these. 
Exactly right, and I should say the 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 full eclipse, that is the 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 eclipse, including the partial eclipse, will last for several hours. Mm. Uh, So there's a partial eclipse that will that will go until the beginning of the total eclipse. So if you're in the path of totality, it'll take about an hour and a quarter, hour and a half for the moon to progress from just just coming over the sun a little bit to when it fully uh, blocks the sun. And then after the total eclipse, which lasts about two minutes, there will be another hour and a quarter to hour and a half of partial eclipse. So it's about three hours for the full event. Um, but really, it's those two minutes of total eclipse that are by far the most dramatic. And frankly, after the total eclipse is, ever, is over, everyone just ignores the partial eclipse that continues on after that, mm. because after the experience of the total eclipse, a partial eclipse just pales. Mm. I've heard of conflicting advice about uh, how best to protect yourself during the the uh, your eyes during the, the the partial eclipse. You said during total eclipse you can look you can look directly at the sun. Uh, apart from that, uh, you know you have to protect your eyes. Uh, do you can you get eclipse glasses? Do you? Have, I, I've heard advice that you, you shouldn't even look through you know protective glasses. No, if you get uh, glasses that are made for this purpose, it is perfectly safe to look at the sun. So they're not very expensive. You can get eclipse glasses. Um, Some stores, some hardware stores are selling them, but you can easily get them online. Uh, And I've got links on my website to some of the manufacturers who are making certifiably safe eclipse glasses. If you buy them in in bulk, they only cost a dollar or two dollars each. It's not a big investment. But uh, it is perfectly safe to look at the sun during the partial eclipse through those glasses. If you don't have eclipse glasses, you can make yourself a pinhole projector. Basically, just take a piece of cardboard, poke a tiny hole in it. You don't, do not look through the hole, but rather let the sunlight uh, go through the hole and project onto another surface. And you will see, instead of a little dot of sunlight, you'll see a little crescent during the partial eclipse. Uh, but frankly, it's a lot more interesting to actually watch the partial eclipse through eclipse glasses, and so um, I would encourage folks to get them in advance of August 21st. Mm. How would you compare, I mean, there are eclipses happening all the time, right? Partial eclipses, there are lunar eclipses, partial solar eclipses, but, but uh, I'm, I'm guessing you're saying the most spectacular, the most mind-blowing is the, is the total solar eclipse. Right. So, I mean, probably most everyone listening right now has seen some form of eclipse. So a lunar eclipse sometimes called a blood moon, occurs, uh, you know, they, they occur not that infrequently. Uh, often once every year or two you'll be able to see one, where the moon passes through the shadow of the Earth, and so the full moon turns a really dark red color. And that's really interesting and fun to watch. And a partial solar eclipse is also not that rare. Many people have seen them. Again, if you look with some sort of, uh, if you view the sun in some safe way, such as through eclipse glasses, you'll see the sun turn into a crescent. And that's very interesting. But a total solar eclipse is extraordinarily rare. Any given point on Earth sees a total eclipse just once every 400 years or so. Uh, And again, it is just, it is, so completely different. It is really, I think, the most awe-inspiring spectacle in all of nature. And so if you've seen a partial eclipse and you think that you've seen, that you have a sense of what a total eclipse is, I tell you, you don't. It's fundamentally different. Mm. Are you going to be with friends? Uh, what, are you going to be alone? What do you do? How would you oh, I've encouraged, do? so I made my hotel reservation in Jackson, Wyoming, three years ago. <laughs> I found a hotel willing to take my reservation, mm. 
and then I convinced a whole bunch of family members to do the same. So there will be 14 of us gathered in Jackson for the eclipse. Um, and, of course, there will be thousands and thousands and thousands of others. Jackson's going to be a zoo. Mm. It'll be a zoo, frankly, all along the path of totality. Um, but, uh, yeah, but I, I plan to get there on Saturday, so two days before the eclipse, and won't leave until Tuesday, the day after the eclipse. So I'm hoping to avoid the worst of the traffic. Yeah, that's going to be a spectacular sight. Um, and it must be, uh, imagine you've had this experience, you certainly will in Jackson, I'm guessing, of uh, being with people who have not witnessed a total solar eclipse. That must be a, a good experience. Yeah, and including I will be with uh, with a young cousin and some nieces and nephews, and I really am looking forward to how the kids react. Um, you know, it... it Again, the, the total eclipse for me, the one that I saw, really was a life-changing uh, event. And for kids, it can really be inspirational. Well, I've been on a book tour uh, the last month and a half, and uh, when I was giving a talk in Philadelphia, after the talk, a young man in his 20s came up to me to tell me that he had seen that same eclipse I saw in Aruba in 1998. He saw as a boy in Venezuela, because the path of totality that year crossed Venezuela and Aruba. And he said witnessing that total eclipse when he was a child inspired him to become a scientist, and he is now a physicist. Uh, and I think we will see the same effect this year, that there will be a significant number of children who are really inspired by the eclipse to want to learn about the natural world and perhaps to become scientists. In fact, um, someone I know at NASA has commented that she considers the total eclipse this year to be the biggest public event in space science since the moon landing. And I think we will see a similar effect of just getting the, getting the public excited about science again. Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to get into talking about the fascinating book. The new book from David Barron is American Eclipse, a nation's epic race to catch the shadow of the moon and win the glory of the world. Uh, David Barron is a, an eclipse chaser, as we've heard, and he's uh, delved into some fascinating history, a, a total eclipse uh, that crossed America in 1878. Uh, we'll get into talking about that uh, when we come back. And uh, I'd love to know your eclipse plans. So let us know what, what you plan to do. Um, and uh, how you plan to navigate the crowds and uh, what this means to you, you can call us at 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. David Barron will be in Jacksonville, Wyoming. Where will you be? What are your plans? 800-826-1495 or upraxcess at gmail.com. More following this break. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about a, a total solar eclipse, which is happening August 21st, coming up quickly. And we're talking with um, avid umberphile, eclipse chaser David Barron, uh, who will be in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, on uh, that occasion. Uh, David Barron is an award-winning journalist, former science correspondent for NPR, former science editor for the uh, program The World, and... Uh, his uh, website, American-Eclipse.com. We want to know what your plans are, your eclipse plans. And if you have any questions or comments, we'd uh, take those as well. 800-826-1495 or email us to upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. 
Uh, David Barron, I have a friend who's reserved a driveway up uh, somewhere in Idaho, I think. Uh, that's uh, Some people have done that. They can't get a hotel room, but they at least want someplace to be. Other people, I guess, are just going to pull over to the side of the road. I'm not sure. Yes, well, so, uh, you know, the so many of these towns in the path of the total eclipse ran out of hotel rooms long ago, but the communities are doing their best to... Uh, to accommodate the crowds that want to come. And so there are private individuals who are opening up their homes on Airbnb or through local websites uh, for people who want to stay there. There are farmers who are opening up their farm fields for people to pitch their tents. There are churches that are allowing folks to, to park their vans or RVs in the parking lot, sleep there overnight, but access uh, the church bathrooms, for instance. Uh, so there are still ways, uh, if one wants to get to the path and stay there overnight to do it. I would encourage, though, that folks do plan ahead so that you don't park someplace unsafe and illegally overnight. Well, I want to get into your uh, book here, you and you write at the end of your book, Eclipses, you say, I find, connect the present with the past, like few other uh, natural events. Before we jump into the book, um, and you, you treat this a little bit, um, I want to go back to maybe more ancient history. What... Uh, imagine for ancient people's total solar eclipses must have been, I don't know, a frightening event, certainly a, a, a quite the event. Oh, absolutely terrifying. I mean, I tell you, even today, even knowing what's going on, that all that's happening is the moon is passing between us and the sun and it's briefly going dark, uh, a total eclipse is still, on some level, terrifying because it just reminds you how powerless we are when it comes to the forces of the universe. But in, in ancient times, of course, if all of a sudden it goes dark in the middle of the day and you look up and the sun is gone, and instead you see this mysterious glowing halo in the sky, it is just absolutely terrifying. And so there are uh, events in history, and I write very briefly about this, but uh, for instance, in, in the 6th century B.C., there were these two warring powers in, uh, in Asia Minor that had been fighting for six years when suddenly there was the darkness of a total eclipse that came over and the warring powers decided this was a sign from above that they had better make peace, and they did. Um, in, a, in a lot of Asian cultures, a total eclipse was thought to be caused by a dragon eating the sun, and so people would go out and beat their gongs to try to scare the dragon off. Um, but again, even today, when we know what's going on, it still, on some level, is quite terrifying. Hmm. Now, you write uh, you, this book, American Eclipse, is about a, uh, a total solar eclipse that crossed uh, America in a different pattern, right, uh, north to south instead of uh, sort of west-east, um, in 1878. And you, you begin your book with um, treating some of the history at that time in Texas, uh, and uh, you remind us that it, during this time in America, there's a lot of people who believe the second coming of Christ is imminent, that uh, or biblical prophecy is that uh, preceding the uh, second coming of, of Christ, then the, 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 uh, the sun would disappear and, and there, there'd be celestial signs. Uh, tell us about, there, there, you talk about a gentleman uh, in, in Texas who reacted in a, in a very violent way. Yeah, so... Uh, so in 1878, the path of totality that year went, ran right down the American frontier from Montana Territory to Texas. And I have to say, across, along much of the West, including in Wyoming and Colorado, people knew that the eclipse was coming. They were excited about it. They were viewing it from a scientific perspective. 
But in Texas, there were quite a few folks who were taken by surprise, who were out in their fields on a hot July day when suddenly it went dark and they looked up and they see this glowing crown in, a, in a, what looks like a night sky in the middle of the afternoon. And one of the folks who saw that, his name was Ephraim Miller, he was highly religious, and he was convinced, as many of his neighbors were, that this was Christ returning, and that the apocalypse was about to come. And he uh, was determined to get to the other side as quickly as possible. And in those brief moments of the total eclipse, he made a tragic decision. He ran home, he grabbed a hatchet, he killed his young son, and then he took a razor and he sliced his own throat. And so that was 1878. That was fairly modern times uh, when someone had such a dramatic and unfortunate reaction to the eclipse from not understanding what was going on. And that illustrates, I guess, the divide. There's there's still some people who were completely unaware, many people who were aware. Uh, and in the scientific community that uh, you treat in this book, uh, there among some of the scientists, there's... A concern, I think, that uh, we're not as advanced as as Europe, or we're just backward, but we want to showcase where we're going. Right, and so, so I mean, I chose to tell the story of the 1878 eclipse for several reasons. One was because of the, the specific individuals who observed it, and we'll probably get into that in a minute, but also just what it meant for America. This was such an interesting time in this country. We were still a young nation. We, were, we had just turned 100 years old a couple of years before. And in 1878, although we were becoming quite a powerful and respected nation in terms of our, our industrial production, we were still looked down upon by uh, the Europeans as not terribly intellectual. Europe was the clear center of Western culture. That's where most of the respectable literature and art and music came from. And, and Europe was the center of, of science in the world. But there was a, a determined group of American scientists who wanted to show Europe that we should be taken seriously, that we could do science. And this was a time when total eclipses were very important to astronomy because there were certain studies of the sun that could only be done during a total solar eclipse. And uh, this was a time when the sun was a great mystery. No one really knew what it was made of or what, how, how it got all that energy that it could shine. And so whenever a total eclipse occurred, somewhere on the planet, uh, nations would put together these eclipse expeditions to Asia or to the Mediterranean to, to sit in the path of totality and during those two or three minutes of midday darkness frantically conduct their studies. And in 1878, this was our chance to show the world what we could do because the eclipse was coming to our own backyard. So it really was, it, it was an interesting scientific event that gave this young nation an opportunity to rally around science and helped inspire the U.S. to become what it soon would be, which was the global superpower in science. And so that's when I, you know, I call the book American Eclipse, uh, which is both because it was about an eclipse, but it really is what helped America eclipse the rest of the world in science a few decades later. I want to pause the history here and uh, get a question in from Charles, who has emailed us. You can email us as well to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. Charles asked this question, why isn't the path of totality somewhat at a constant latitude? That's an interesting point, that, you know, because it, it drops, the path drops from north to south as it goes east to uh, west-east. Yeah, and that's, that's a good question, and that's because the, the moon's orbit uh, is tilted a bit 
uh, in relation to the the Earth's orbit around the Sun. And so, so the the Moon isn't just passing uh, sideways across the Earth. It also has a bit of north-south or sometimes south-north movement. And so the path of totality is different every time as well. Uh, the, the path this year goes pretty much from west to east, but it, it does go south, Oregon to South Carolina. In 1878, the path was much more north to south, Montana to Texas. Um, and as if you actually see the path of totality, it's, it's sort of snakes. It can look sort of like an S or a C uh, as it goes across the Earth. Uh, and it's, again, it's just that each time eclipse occurs, the, the tilt of the moon's orbit in relation to the Earth's orbit is a bit different. So the, the, this was uh, very interesting in 1878 because it's, uh, it's roughly north to south, and it, this uh, total eclipse uh, slices through, at that time, the Wild West. Exactly, and it was, but it was, a, it was just such an interesting time because the West was still wild, uh, it was still being settled. There were, you know, still very violent clashes between the settlers and, and Native Americans. This was a time when a lot of tribes were being pushed off their traditional lands. Um, but it was now, the West was very accessible because a lot of railroads came out here, and the Transcontinental Railroad had been completed um, less than a decade before. So, in fact, a very popular place for scientists to go was Wyoming, where the Transcontinental Railroad intersected with the path of totality. And there were several places right along the railroad where scientists set up their telescopes to prepare for the eclipse. Parenthetically, what did, uh, what did the American Indian peoples think of, of the eclipse or eclipses? Well, I had a very hard time getting any information about that. Um, certainly, historically speaking, uh, during a number of eclipses, um, Native American tribes have reacted in very strong ways to them and have uh, um, have some traditions around them. In fact, in 1806, um, the uh, the Shawnee tribe um, had uh, a bit that the eclipse that occurred that year was seen as a sign for them to rise up against uh, the Americans who were who were imposing on their lands, uh, and so that helped influence. Uh, some fights between American uh, Indian tribes and the U.S. government. In 1878, however, I could not find any reliable accounts about how the tribes reacted. Mm. We've mentioned how uh, a lot of American scientists uh, saw this as a great opportunity that to to catch up with Europe or to uh, or to show what American science could do. In fact, uh, you say that. Uh, a lot of the uh, scientific community in America approached this as if it were a global scientific tournament. Exactly, right. I mean, it really was a competition. <laughs> and uh, we wanted to show what we could do. And it was really interesting to see the way the American public reacted and the, the newspapers. They treated the eclipse um, as, you know, as if this was America's home team of scientists that were going up against the rest of the world. And they really the public cheered on the scientists and wanted them to show uh, that we were equal to Europe, if not better than Europe, when it came to science. And, you know, and this was a time when science was not well-funded in America, when, uh, in fact, 
there was a belief on the, in the part of some that a democratic, egalitarian nation like the United States would never care about science, that it was only in these uh, countries that were ruled by the elites in Europe where science would ever take off. And so that's, you know, again, why I see the eclipse of 1878 as so important, because it inspired the general public to care about science and to see it as something that we as a nation should get behind and should fund. It's interesting to chart the trajectory of that idea, mistaken ideas. It turns out that the regular citizen would not be interested in science now in an age of, you know, citizen science. It, yeah, and even in 1878, you know, I mean, one of my biases was thinking about the folks who settled the American West as, you know, not being terribly interested in intellectual affairs. They, you know, they had much more immediate concerns of just making a living off the land and ranching and, and mining and, uh, and settling the land. And yet, uh, the folks out in Colorado and Wyoming in the path of totality were really excited about the eclipse, and they volunteered to help the scientists to assist on Eclipse Day with some of their equipment. And in Denver, uh, there were a number of folks who volunteered uh, for a bit of citizen science where uh, they, the, the, the solar corona, the, which today we know is the sun's outer atmosphere, and that's what you see around the, the sun during a total eclipse, uh, it was a great mystery back then what it was. Scientists weren't sure what it was. And so any attempts at just making an accurate drawing of the corona, which changes from eclipse to eclipse, was important. And so there were 20 members of the public in Denver who volunteered for a corona drawing class. And then during the three minutes of totality, they frantically sketched the corona as a team. Everyone was divided up to sketch a different part of the corona to put together what was considered to be the most accurate drawing of the corona that year. So the, Ameri- the public, even out here in the West, were very excited about the eclipse. Hmm. I want to hear about uh, the, the characters in your book. Character, that's a misleading uh, <laughs> uh, word because these are real people. Um, but first of all, but maybe before we go to break and then uh, the other two after, uh, Thomas Edison. Thomas Edison was out in Wyoming for, for the eclipse. What was he doing? Right. Well, that's what first got me interested in the 1878 eclipse, was when I learned that Thomas Edison, at age 31, in the very year, right after he invented the phonograph, and immediately before he invented the uh, incandescent light bulb, he came to Wyoming to see a total solar eclipse. And it's just this fascinating little piece of Edison's life that hasn't really been written about much before. But he, this is a time when Edison uh, was interested in not only being an inventor, but wanted to be a scientist as well. He wanted the respect of scientists. And so he came up with a device that he was going to use to do astronomy. It was called the tesimeter, and it was an extremely sensitive detector of heat that he came to Wyoming to use on the eclipsed sun to study the solar corona and see if it gave off heat as well as light. And it was... It's just a fascinating episode in the life of Thomas Edison that, that actually helped influence what he did with the light bulb when he got home. And I actually think, had he not come to Wyoming in 1878 for the eclipse, it's quite likely he would not have been the one to, to make the first successful light bulb. I want to explore that. And you, have, uh, you get into writing uh, not only about that, but uh, uh, about the scientific process and the fact that the popular conception is uh, much cleaner, right? Um, it's, uh, science is much messier. Uh, tell me about there's a, there's a plaque out in Wyoming. Mm-hmm. That, 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 I think 
more directly than maybe accurately connects uh, Edison's trip out to to his invention of of the light bulb. But but you're all, you're also saying that you think it influenced. Exactly right. So if you go to southern Wyoming to the Sierra Madre Mountains, there's a place called Battle Lake, and uh, it's right off State Highway 70. And there's a historical marker on the side of the road that points out that uh, in 1878, Edison went fishing at Battle Lake, and that's true. But the historical marker claims that Edison, while he was on this fishing trip, was inspired by looking at the bamboo fibers of a fishing pole to create his light bulb. And it is also true that Edison, in his first successful light bulb, used bamboo fiber. It is not true, however, that Edison got the idea for the light bulb in Wyoming on the shores of Battle Lake. That is a simplistic notion that Edison had this eureka moment that inspired him. The story is much more complicated, and I think more interesting, that uh, Edison, while he was in the West, he was traveling with a number of uh, quite prominent scientists, and they were the ones who were encouraging him to take up the challenge of electric lighting and power. Other inventors were taking, trying to come up with a successful light bulb and had not gotten very far. And these folks were encouraging Edison to take that on. But also, key to Edison's success was not only his inventive ability, but his, his ability uh, to at public relations. He was able to... Uh, to just get the newspapers to print the most glowing things about him and what he was doing. And that's when he was in the West in 1878 for the eclipse. He actually had a newspaper reporter following him around for the New York Herald, but he was talking to journalists all over the place. And his ability to, frankly, manipulate the, the media was critically important to his success for the light bulb, because when he got home from Wyoming and he announced that he had solved the problem of incandescent lighting, which he had not, he had the press reporting this as if it were a fact, which enabled him to raise the money he needed to start doing the actual research, and he had to keep the press on his side for the next year and a half while he actually solved the problem of incandescent lighting. So in those two key ways and some other ways, the Eclipse expedition really was important to his ability to, to come up with the light bulb. So, <laughs> so straight up lie. He had not. He had not. Well, solved it was. The problem. Yeah, I mean, you. In some cases, <laughs> it was a lie. I think in other cases, it was just Edison's enthusiasm mm-hmm. getting ahead of him. He announced a month after returning from Wyoming, or uh, that that he had solved the problem of electric lighting, and it actually caused shares in uh, gas companies, because gas lighting was the key way to light homes, gas company shares just plummeted on this news, and investors flocked in and were just throwing money at Edison when he had not solved the problem. He, he thought he did, but he really didn't know. And so he very soon figured out that he didn't know what he was talking about, but he couldn't admit that to the public. And so he had to keep the newspapers uh, believing that he had really solved the problem over the next year while he, f- while he very huh, ardently worked and worked and worked to finally solve the problem, which in the end, he, he ended up using uh, bamboo fiber. But it was not, it was after trying hundreds and hundreds of other substances. So it was not the, the, the bamboo of fishing pole that he used in Wyoming that ultimately inspired him. 
Yeah, that, that's a you know it's it's a nice story that his fishing pole splintered. He then put it in the fire, and then he saw these filaments uh, uh, burning, and uh, so that's the popular conception that oh eureka, but it often doesn't work like that. As you're saying exactly right. It's a fun story, but unfortunately, it's not true. Let's take another break. When we come back, I want to hear about uh, two other uh, main characters uh, in your book, Mariah Mitchell, uh, who uh, she used this to, uh, to to strike a blow for women scientists, an era that did not uh, value them, and uh, James Craig Watson, who was on a quest to uh, find a planet closer to the sun than Mercury, and uh, he was uh, he he was on a, a quest to find this planet Vulcan. I want to hear about uh, them um, and uh, much more from the book American Eclipse. The author is David Barron. More following this uh, break. Thanks for listening to Access U-Time. Tom Williams, my guest uh, this hour, is David Barron, author previously of The Beast in the Garden. He's author most recently of uh, American Eclipse, a nation's epic race to chase the shadow of the moon and win the glory of the world. We talked earlier in this hour about the August 21st eclipse, which is uh, coming near to us in Utah. Great opportunity for you to travel just a bit north and experience a total solar eclipse. David Barron is saying that's well worth the, uh, the, the travel and the trouble. Um, and if you have a remaining question about that, we would entertain that. Or uh, we're talking about some fascinating history, uh, an important eclipse in American history, in July of uh, 1878 uh, is the subject of the book. 800-826-1495 is the toll-free number, 800-826-1495. Or you can reach us to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. I'd love to know your August 21st plans, maybe some suggestions for us. So, David Barron, uh, I wonder if you could tell me a bit about uh, Mariah Mitchell. Uh, she's uh, at uh, Vassar, right, which recently, I think, established. Uh, maybe first uh, tell me, I was fascinated to, to read in the book, some fairly prominent attitudes about women in science. There were people who were completely opposed. Yeah, so, I, you know, it sounds absolutely ridiculous today, but uh, in the 1870s, when uh, women's colleges were just getting off the ground in the United States, uh, there was a widespread belief that uh, this was not good for women's health that actually that if a woman uh, used her brain too much when she was just maturing as a girl, that uh, it could hamper her development. And there was a book that came out in 1873 that made this case quite remarkably, that, uh, that actually said that if a woman used her brain too much in college, it would sap resources from her reproductive organs and turn her into a sterile masculine invalid. And this was taken seriously. Well, so Mariah Mitchell, who uh, was by far the most famous female scientist in America, she was an astronomer. In 1847, she discovered a comet and received a gold medal from the King of Denmark for that. By 1878, she was teaching at Vassar College, which was a new all-women's college, and she, of course, thought that this theory about how education was bad for women's health was ridiculous. So in 1878, when dozens of men were assembling eclipse expeditions to Colorado and Wyoming and Texas, she took it upon herself to assemble an all-female expedition to Denver. And so the Vassar College Eclipse Party was a scientific expedition, but it was more than that. It was kind of political theater 
to show the American public that this theory about how education is bad for women's health was ridiculous. And so here were these six healthy, smart, educated, scientifically-minded women who on their own traveled to Denver. Uh, I have a wonderful photograph uh, in my book of the Vassar College Eclipse Party on the plains of Denver, sitting in their Victorian dresses next to their telescopes. And uh, the, the public was just fascinated by, by these women. And uh, it really did help to change minds about uh, that, that you could be a woman and you could be a, a scientist. What were they specifically uh, looking? What, what was anyone uh, looking to uh, to advance science? So this was an opportunity for people at the time, right? To uh, what uh, science about the sun? What what other things? Right. So they they like like all the men male scientists as well were uh, studying the corona, looking at its shape and size. Uh, they were also looking for uh, any perhaps other planets that might exist. And this brings us to the other character you mentioned, James Craig Watson. Uh, so James Craig Watson, who was uh, professor of astronomy at the University of Michigan, he came out to Wyoming during the eclipse of 1878, determined to find a planet that many astronomers believed existed between Mercury and the Sun. Mercury's orbit puzzled astronomers. It didn't quite behave the way Newtonian mechanics suggested it, could, it should. And the explanation that many came up with was there must be a planet that's closer to the sun than Mercury, that's disturbing its orbit. And the planet was given the name Vulcan. Um, and uh, uh, being so close to the sun, however, it would never be in the sky at night, and you couldn't see it during the daytime. About the only time you might actually see Vulcan would be during a total solar eclipse when the moon blocked the bright surface of the sun. So James Craig Watson did, was determined to find Vulcan, and I should say that the Vassar Party was looking for Vulcan as well. However, the Vassar Party didn't see a planet. James Craig Watson did. And in fact, the big headline out of the eclipse of 1878 was that James Craig Watson, an American astronomer, found the planet Vulcan. It probably won't surprise anyone to know that he was wrong, but at the time, no one knew he was wrong, and, and they thought that Vulcan had actually been found. Yeah, I was just going to say, I'm not familiar with, uh, with, with, <laughs> with Vulcan. So uh, I guess for a while, it was thought it was there, and I, I guess then proved wrong. Yeah, so, I mean, it, again, there were good reasons to believe that it existed. Uh, and I should say, the person who finally solved the problem of Mercury's bizarre orbit was Albert Einstein. It wasn't until quite a bit after the eclipse of 1878 that Einstein, with his general theory of relativity, explained that around a supermassive object like the Sun, um, gravity actually warps the fabric of space. And so uh, so things don't move the way Newton said they should. And when Einstein applied his theory, general theory of relativity to Mercury's orbit, it explained Mercury's orbit without the need for finding a planet Vulcan. So there were good reasons to believe it existed, um, and it took Einstein to figure out why Vulcan did not exist. As a scientific community in, in total, the American scientific community, was this seen then, uh, the science that came out of this uh, total eclipse in 1878, was this seen as a step forward? Uh, so at the time, it absolutely was seen as a step forward. After all, all Vulcan was found. Edison, with his new device, the tesimeter, it seemed he was about to revolutionize astronomy. In hindsight, neither of those things panned out, <laughs> and that's the way science goes. You know, you take two steps forward and one step back. So the actual 
astronomical discoveries of 1878 honestly didn't amount to much. But the eclipse itself was hugely important in terms of its effect on this country, in terms of being an early scientific event that the American public rallied around, that helped get this, uh, get this country standing beside science as a communal goal, something we should all support, and helping to push us toward what we would become, which was uh, and is America, the, really the world's uh, global superpower in science. Well, a fascinating uh, history. I just have another couple of uh, you know general eclipse uh, questions. We just have a couple minutes left. Um, what what if people want to uh, photograph or video record this eclipse coming up on August twenty first? What would you what uh, what's the best way to go about that? Is that well, possible? Advisable? My, my main piece of advance, uh, advice for anyone who wants to photograph or videotape the total eclipse is honestly don't do it. <laughs> it is. Such a brief and precious uh, experience that I would say you don't want your memory of it to be fiddling with your camera <laughs> and probably getting the exposure wrong and maybe dropping it because you get so excited and overwhelmed. Uh, and this will be the most photographed total eclipse in history. You can be sure there will be wonderful photos of it up online within hours from NASA and so forth. However, uh, first of all, if someone is adamant to photograph it, I do at my website, American-Eclipse.com, on my page of information about the August 21st eclipse, I have links to some sites that do tell you how to photograph the, an eclipse. Uh, however, one thing I would advise is taking your smartphone, setting it up on a tripod, and not pointing it necessarily at the sun, but pointing it at yourself and your loved ones, and starting to record video maybe five or ten minutes before the total eclipse, and just letting it run to capture your own reactions to totality. Because that's what you're not going to be able to see anyone else put up online, is how you responded. And that, I do think, is worth recording. Just start the recording far enough in advance that you don't have to worry about the camera during the total eclipse, and you can just fully enjoy the experience. Understood. Now, I imagine you, after this, you'll at some point be off to another total eclipse somewhere. So the next two total eclipses after this will be in South America, both in 2019 and 2020. But I should say that the United States will have another total solar eclipse just seven years from now. That one won't cross this part of the country. It'll go from Texas to Maine. Uh, but anyone who misses the total eclipse this year and doesn't want to go to South America... There will be another opportunity in the United States, April 8th of 2024, so put it on your calendar now. Mm. Uh, but this is the big opportunity. You won't have to travel that far uh, from, from Utah, so uh, this, is the, this is the opportunity. I, I wonder, just a uh, last question, to David Barron, maybe tell us again your, your experience, uh, um, your reaction in general to uh, total solar eclipses. You You've had such a reaction that you, you chase these now. A total solar eclipse is unlike anything else. It is glorious. It is mind-blowing. It is transcendent. You will be standing for two minutes or so looking at a completely 
alien sky and just seeing the universe and your place in it in a fundamentally new way. It is something that everyone in his or her life should experience at least once. Well, August 21st is an opportunity. The uh, path of totality is coming through uh, Idaho and Wyoming, so not uh, too uh, too far away. And uh, the book, very interesting, David uh, Barron's book, is American Eclipse, A Nation's Epic Race to Catch the Shadow of the Moon and the Glory of the World. And uh, the website is American-Eclipse.com. David Barron, thank you so much. Tom, it was my pleasure. Thank you. And thanks for listening to Access Utah.